A Yale graduate with a degree in ethics, politics, and economics, Jewel Ross started his career in Hollywood in the mailroom at ICM. He also spent time learning the business as an assistant at Paradigm before being offered a position as an agent at APA. He had his first spec sale in his first two weeks at APA for $250,000 and a total of 10 sales in the first year, two for just under a million. After three very successful years at APA, he transitioned to management at Marathon Entertainment. Four years later, Jewel started his own management company, Silent R Management. With over 14 years in the business, Ross can boast a hot slate of writer and director clients. Ross represents screenwriter Matt Aldrich, who is currently writing the untitled Pixar movie about Dia de los Muertos for Pixar Animation Studios, slated for a 2016 release. In 2011, Aldrich sold one of the biggest specs of that year, Father-Daughter Time, a tale of armed robbery and Eskimo kisses with Matt Damon attached to Star. Warner Brothers purchased it in a bidding war that concluded with a sale price of $500,000 against $800,000. That script was number five on the blacklist of the best screenplays of 2011. Aldrich and Ross are producing Aldrich's script, The Grace That Keeps This World, which has Brian Cranston, James Franco, Glenn Close, and Britt Marling attached to star, and is set for production in November of 2014. Ross also represents Brad Beaker, executive producer and director on both Fox's hit series Glee and American Horror Story on FX. Brad is currently under a seven-figure overall deal at 20th Century Fox. In film, Beaker is also set to direct Time After Time, a $35 million musical for Summit Entertainment. Other clients include comedy writer David H. Steinberg, who is best known for American Pie 2, Slackers, and DreamWorks' Puss in Boots, and who recently got his pilot, Fizz Ed, produced at ABC Family, and Evan Endicott, whose original pilot script, Betas, was just ordered to series by Amazon Studios. Thank you for joining me today, Cool. You're very welcome. Now, after several years of working for a number of prominent agencies and management companies like ICM, APA, Paradigm, and Marathon, you decided to start your own management company in 2006, Silent R. Other than the autonomy of being your own boss, what drove you to create your own company instead of joining another bigger firm? I don't think another big firm would have hired me because, you know, I wasn't you know, I was bringing enough money for me to have a successful small business, but I wasn't bringing, at the time, my, my clients weren't that big and that sexy, and I wasn't bringing enough money to be, you know, a real value um, to a big company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, you know, it's not something I, you know, and I didn't explore the option at the time. I didn't, you know, take meetings at bigger companies. Um, it's, it's a good question I'm, and that I really don't have the answer to. I, I spent... Um, you know, I knew that I, I could, you know, support myself on my own in my own company. And um, maybe by that time, I was acutely aware, as I am now, that I just don't have the personality to um, stand the politics at a big company. So maybe by then, when I started my company, you know, I just I just had, had already figured that out. But I'm not exactly sure. Now, what is a typical day like for you as a manager? Like, how early does your day start? How late do you work? How many calls and meetings do you take? And just on average. You know, my days are, you know, no, one of the reasons why this job is great is that, you know, no day is the same. You know, for example, I spent all of yesterday just cleaning out my email box. You know, I had 300 emails that I had that I needed to, you know, either respond to or just know that they existed. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, you know, the emails become so prevalent, I just had to spend the entire day just, getting into my email box and filing things away and responding to things. You know, as, as it relates to email specifically, I sometimes spend, 
you know, three days a week just not responding to email because, you know, there's so much of it. You know, mm-hmm. I don't have time to generate my own. If I spend all my day responding to email, I don't have time to generate my own. I'm, I'm just reacting to things instead of generating my own stuff. I, um, you know, this week, you know, I was, I'm at with a script um, called uh, The Vicious Kind that I've been, you know, getting out to a lot of buyers, and so I spent, you know, two days a week doing that. Um, you know, last week, uh, that Thursday, Friday, I'm, there's a script that I'm interested in getting on the blacklist that um, I'm, I'm producing with uh, Michael Costigan uh, that uh, I sent to, you know, 150, 160, 170 uh, people just as a sample. Um, I spend, um, you know, there, I, you know, if a, if I can spend, you know, half my morning. I spent half my morning two days ago just strategizing with one of my big clients, you know, talking through, you know, the politics involved with his you know, deal he's under and trying to understand, you know, how are we going to set up more projects and the next steps on the things we're working on. You know, I think the biggest part of my job is being uh, a self-starter, you know, mm-hmm. like you know, when I come in every morning, I don't necessarily you know, I have to create the plan for the day. You know, yes, I have a list of the clients, and yes, people have issues, you know, or things that need to be focused on, but, but, you know, often, you know, there is no agenda, and I have to, you know, create an agenda. You know, where on my list will I find the next deal? Who, you know, is underexploited and needs, you know, more people to meet with them and read them? Who, um, you know, what, you know, ideas have I heard recently? Do I need to, you know... Um, get out to more people, um, you know, what, you know, I, I had a lull in, you know, three weeks ago where I, you know, I had this thing on my desk, which is, you know, a list of, it's a Microsoft Word document where I keep um, just a list of all the things that I want to do or all the things, all people who, you know, uh, I've spoken to that have something that could potentially be right for a client. And, and so I just spent time going through that list, which I do, you know, once a month, you know, sometimes maybe once every two months. And because um, I, I need to figure out some ideas on what I needed to do that day or that week. And uh, one of the things that I had, I realized after looking at that list that I hadn't done in a long time was I hadn't been at a walkthrough at a lot of the agencies. And so hmm. I spent that afternoon setting up a walkthrough at CAA, which is basically meeting, you know, for 15 minutes or 20 minutes. Uh, uh, a good number of agents, and so you know, I just did that walkthrough. Um, I don't know, if it was last Tuesday, or the Tuesday before, um, where I sat down with about a dozen CA agents. You know, mostly to shake the trees, to you know, uh, hear about potential clients, tell them what's going on with mine. You know, I left with a with a grab bag of you know stuff to look at and stuff to read, and um, and so I know for the next two or three weekends I'll be spending, you know, really going through that, you know, mountain of material. So it's really, you know, quite entrepreneurial. It's really um, trying to uh, create something from nothing. Mm -hmm. What should a writer look for in a good manager or lit agent? Uh, Other than the traditional, oh, they have to be passionate about you and your material. You know, the only thing that really matters is that that person has the passion to send your script to 100 people. Mm-hmm. You know, that they have the relationships and and are motivated enough to get that piece of material and you in front of that many people. Um, it's, um, you know, yes, there, 
you know, their nuances of whether they really get you and, you know, right. but, you know, when you're starting out, none of that shit really matters. What, what matters is, you know, that you're important enough to them and that they like your stuff enough that they want to send it to people. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, that's, it, it's, at least when someone is starting out, that is what matters most. Right. Um, now, in terms of clients, uh, other than good writing, what do you look for in a client? Um, how does a screenwriter make him or herself stand out to you? It varies. I mean, the, I mean, the most important thing is is great is a great screenplay. I mean, or great a great piece of writing, be it a play or a, you know, I represent playwrights or um, a pilot. You know, I represent TV writers. Um, I mean, that's hands down the most important thing. You know, after I. I read something that I love, then nothing, you know, the other stuff really doesn't matter. You know, you can really, you know, I don't really care if you're good in a room. You know, I do care that you want to produce more material. You know, I'm not looking to sign someone who has, who only has one story to tell. And it'll take them another two years to deliver or three years to deliver another piece of material worthy of anyone taking a look at. You know, Mm -hmm. ideally, you know, that person is writing and always writing and can produce good material of can produce material at, of, at a certain quality level consistently throughout the year. Um, you know, I had experience this week where I read a pilot by someone. I liked it. You know, I liked it. I didn't love it, love it, love it, but I liked it a lot. And I thought, um, you know, this was good enough for me to get in the room with this person. And then once I got in the room with them, I realized they weren't a, a match, you know, um, you know, for a TV pilot, for a TV, someone who wants to be a TV writer, I think, you know, their personality matters as much as anything. Right. And being able to talk about ideas in a way that get other people excited, being able to have great ideas, to be able to, you know, spark a creative conversation with people, to be able to instill confidence that you have a creative point of view, mm-hmm. to, um, you know, so like, and all those really ephemeral things that it's very difficult to, um, it's very difficult to teach someone how to be exciting in that way. Right. You know, this person just didn't have any of those qualities. I couldn't imagine putting her in a room with someone and someone being excited about her creatively just based on how she um, held herself or how she talked about her material or how she talked about her process. There are many ways to get people excited about you in a room, and I just didn't sense, you know, I was going to get that response you know, if I put that person in a room with other people. You know, I think that is the best answer. Okay. Um, Now, one thing that I thought was really interesting, that I saw you uh, reposted a letter that Johnny Depp uh, wrote to thank his longtime agent, saying that it reminded you of what the goal of representation was. Um, Do you remember what the note was? um, I do. Um, Did you read it? It said, uh, Darling Tracy... Thank you is not nearly enough. You believed in me when no one else did or would. You stuck by me through great difficulties, ugliness, and beauty while others turned away. Your friendship, bravery, wisdom, strength, trust, and love know no bounds. I'm humbled by your devotion, inspired by your courage and conviction, blessed to have you in my life, and proud to call you a friend. I love you more than you'll ever be able to comprehend. As the old saying goes, I'm nothing without you. Johnny. So Johnny Depp wrote that about Tracy Jacobs. Yes, I remember that. Okay. Yeah, and so um, you had mentioned that it was, you know, reminding you what the goal of representation was. So um, what is the goal of representation? 
I do this job because it's my life's work. I do this job because it gets me out of bed in the morning. I do this job because I'm really good at it and really passionate about it. Mm-hmm. You know, but outside of, you know, finding great material, being passionate about material, being inspired by material, trying to sell material, what it, you know, I'm really in the business of human, you know, relationships, you know, starting and building from scratch a relationship with someone that can, can last through the years who, um, you know, where you are in many ways there, sometimes their soul, but oftentimes their best advocate. And, you know, that kind of relationship is deep and multifaceted and interesting to me. And, you know, it's not like a friendship. You know, it's, it's not like, you know, you know, you, you know, a friendship in many ways is a two-way street or friendship, you know what, you know, the expectations are. This is, um, in many ways, a more complicated relationship. Yes, there's money involved. Yes, there's self-interest on both parties involved, but it's really... You know, you know, I have a lot of um, warm feeling attached to, you know, that kind of relationship and that kind of relationship done on the highest level. And, um, you know, I want my career, when I look back at my career, I want, you know, a collection of people to talk about me in the same way that Johnny Depp talked about Tracy Jacobs in that note because it, I think that is the essence of a job well done and it's you know and it's more than just a job it's a um you know having you know it's it's a life well done you know right. and uh, that you know gets me out of bed in the morning and and maybe it's because i'm you know codependent and um i, I want i need all these relationships in my life uh who knows what the psychological reasons for it and who you know who knows what, uh, what the underpinnings of why i chose this profession but i know it works and I know um, that ideal is um, worthy. Right. Now, talking about the sort of client-manager relationship, what do you expect from your clients in terms of communication and initiative? Um, how often do you like to see a new spec from your you know, non-working clients, obviously not on a job? You know, we had this conversation a second ago about expectations, and mm-hmm. I, I made those statements, but I also I know that writing a good script is difficult. Mm-hmm. In my estimation, there is magic involved with doing something really, really well. You know, I feel like a great script is something that is that can provoke an emotional reaction, an intense physical emotional reaction, mm-hmm. and doing that work at a high level is magical. And often, it is difficult to produce that magic. You know, I have a client who I really like named Sasha Isaac Young. She wrote a script that I really love called The Prettiest Girl. We got her signed to TAA. We got, you know, a lot of people read this script. She met really sexy companies, blah, blah, blah. And, I, you know, I've had several offers that script over the years and several directors who've loved it. And, you know, I've pulled it together almost many, many times, you know. And she has been trying to write this new script. And I, I, I optioned out of my own pocket the book for her to, uh, for her to adapt because she was super 100% passionate about it. You know, I, I don't know what I paid for the option. I don't know if it was $1,000 or $2,000. And, um, you know, she calls me to say, you know, Jewel, I've written a script and it's not good. You know, she read it and she just thinks it's not good. And so she has to go back to the drawing board. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, if I were a person to say, you know, oh, you know, we have, we're, we, there's a ticking clock on this fucking option. Oh, you haven't delivered a new script to me in 10 months. Oh, you know, you're failing me because of whatever. I mean, all of that is not leaving space for the magic. 
you know, I, it, it, it is often unpredictable when you can write something that can do all of those things that I described. Um, I'm, I'm sure I would be richer if I didn't think this way. Right. <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm not looking to just create products. You know, I'm looking for, you know, a, uh, an emotional experience. And um, I have to be open to the fact that she may not deliver me another fucking script for another six months or nine months right. and have to be okay with that. And so do I give everyone that kind of leeway? Um, you know, if you're not going to produce work, you know, and you're not going to produce work at a, at a clip, that's your career. You know, I'm not going to lose sleep over you not producing work, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you want to have a career, you produce work that is at a certain level at a, at a certain interval. You know, there's a lot of other things I need to leave, lose sleep over. Right. So outside of, outside of expecting, you know, so that's one element of expectations is producing work. The other expectations are, um, I mean, I just, I don't, I generally don't find people who are crazy or too insecure <laughs> or, um, I mean, if I'm going to work nine hours a day, I want my writers to work nine hours a day. Mm-hmm. Um, now, speaking of, of expectations from clients and, and you know, writers who don't deliver, have you ever fired a client or let a client go? And if so, what were the reasons? Um, or if not, what would drive you to, you know, cut loose a client? I don't necessarily, I don't fire clients. I mean, well, there was a there was a, a young writing team that lives in, you know, on the East Coast that I liked recently just because I read a script. I signed off a script I really loved uh, four years ago, five years ago, something like that. And every script they've written after that, I just was less enthusiastic about it. Mm-hmm. And I probably, if I was if I was some other representative, I probably would have, you know, let them go before, you know, long ago, or stopped doing their calls or something. Mm-hmm. But you know, I like them and they're nice people, and and I did many things to try to get more better scripts out of them, developing things with them, having other producers develop things with them, and they just never. And you know, and these and the scripts they produced were good enough to get other people excited. You know, right at the head of uh, ICM. Lit department once called me about one of their scripts. I mean, but it was nothing that I thought, in my personal, in my humble or arrogant opinion, was good enough for me to want to send to 100 people. Mm-hmm. And so I told them that they should find someone who's more enthusiastic about their work. But, you know, and, but the majority of time, in the majority of time, I don't know if I'm saying that right, um, uh, if relationships end, they end organically or on their own. You know, I represented these guys for eight years out of London. Eight years. And um, they had come close to big things many times. I'd gone out with many scripts. I had, you know, they they had worked, but never at a high level. You know, a hundred thousand dollars here, thirty thousand dollars here, there. And um, you know, they had they were at a, they were at a low point. They wrote a script that I didn't like. And um, you know, I called them to tell them I didn't like it. You know, whenever I give a client news that I don't like a script of theirs. Mm-hmm. I I know it's you know a recipe for them firing me. I know that I must I must have the you know I know that I must be prepared for them to take that information and use it as a as a reason to end our relationship. You know, mm-hmm. so whenever I give someone a bad news in that regard, I have to gear myself up for you know for the worst of it. You know, because I run a business based on my opinion and based on my being honest and direct with people. You know, it's it's that's that's probably one of the hardest things about my job, just being able to deal with the negative consequences of being honest with people. Right. So I called them up. I told them I didn't like their script. 
You know, they didn't believe me. I sent it to seven people who all didn't like it. I had all those seven people send them, email me direct comments on why they didn't like it, blah, blah, blah. And, um, but they still, they were upset about it. And um, they used it as their excuse to end our eight-year relationship. Hmm. And, um, you know, I had to be okay with that because, you know, the script wasn't good, and right. in my opinion. And, um, you know, and, you know and, and I really had no regrets because I know in those eight years I worked my ass off for them. They had, got, they had gotten the best of me in every regard. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you can do your best and fail. Well, well fail is a strong word. You know, for <laughs> me, they had, they had a career, but they just weren't operating. You know, I thought there were people who could become seven-figure clients, and they never became seven-figure clients. Right, and um, you know, um, uh, so but I did my best for them, and my expectations were never reached in that time, and it happens. Mm-hmm. You had mentioned uh, one of the clients being on the East Coast, and just because you mentioned that, I just wanted to touch base on that. How important is it for uh, clients to be based in Los Angeles? Oh, you know, that's probably one of the reasons why these clients in London weren't, were less successful. They had everything it took to be successful here. Mm-hmm. Their scripts were good enough. They were great in their room. They knew how to pitch on ideas. They were well-liked. I mean, they had everything it took, but because they were here twice a year, mm-hmm. they, um, they, it was harder for them to convert that energy into jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, I have been naive enough to sign clients from all around the world and and hope for the best. But it puts people at a disadvantage, you know. Um, it puts people at a disadvantage. So I, because I'm a sucker for great scripts, I will still do that. But, you know, it's it's really important. You know, I have this young kid. I represent this young kid named Jack Stanley. He's 23 or 24. Uh, he lived in New York, you know, went out with a couple of scripts. You know, he just moved to L.A., and I'm out with another script that people are loving. The fact that he's here on the ground, I mean, I just think it's, it has increased his value to people. It has increased the, you know, um, you know out of sight, out of mind. Right. And uh, I have 100% confidence that, you know, because he's here and because his scripts are so good, he is going to have a career of note. I mean, I haven't been excited about a 24-year-old since I was a 24-year-old. <laughs> right. Sound like an old man. I'm not an old man. I'm 37. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, you know, and so yeah, it's important to be here, but you know, not everyone is do, is is willing to do what it takes in order to have a career in this business. And right. sometimes doing what it takes means picking up your entire life and moving to fucking Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, what are some of the things that you do to break a new writer client? Is it harder to break a new feature screenwriter or a TV writer? People write things, you send them out to people. I mean, <laughs> at, its, at, its, at its very basic. I mean, right. it's, it's not that complicated. You send scripts out, you, you set meetings. You know, I mean, there are, there are a lot of ways to send scripts out. You have relationships with actors. And, and you know, um, if you have relationships with um, directors or, you know, with agents, without agents, I mean, there's nuance in doing those things, but it's really just sending scripts out to people and uh, getting people excited about those scripts. You know, that the, the all the skills it takes to get a job, mm-hmm. you know, are not necessarily related to the skills it takes to write a great script. Right. You know, sitting in a room and pitching someone and convincing one, someone that the words that come out of your mouth 
are the words that you can put on a page. Mm. That's it's, that's a, its own science, and people you need to learn that science over time. Right. You know, one of my young clients who I think is supremely talented. I don't know if she has that skill, but you know, you know, I'm still, you know, I'm hoping that she learns it. <laughs> you right. know, David Steinberg, who I've represented for 13 years, it really take it took him years, seven years, to be really great at it. Right. You know, right. He is now he is now really great at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it took years and years and years to figure it out and to be to know how to come up with the take, what to put in the take, what to focus on in the take, how to, you know, how to sell the take. Uh, I wanted to talk about your roster. Your roster seems pretty stable, fine. And so, how do you find room to add new talent that you might come across? That's a good question. You know, I um, my list is much smaller than many of my competitors. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, I can imagine having 50 clients and wanting to work for all of them, I mm-hmm. mean, I just can't imagine. I don't want to work that hard. I, I work hard, right? but I can't imagine how, how you would work to have 50, you know, have 50 clients and do them justice. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know I, 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 if I need to spend a week working on one person, I have the ability to do that, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, finding something that I love enough to want to put in, you know, a lot of time and effort into. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then not only is it, is it you know, not only is it finding the finding that person and thinking they're talented, but it's signing that person and convincing them that you're the one. Right. You know, um, that's its own thing. And so I, I I find people and I don't always win. You know, mm. I think I'm the shit, but not everyone is convinced. Right. You right. know. Right. And so um, that was a joke. Uh, <laughs> and so um, it, it, I I'm convinced that I'm representing the people I should be representing. Right. And, um, you know, when something is meant to happen, it's meant to happen. Right. You can't have a conversation like this without talking about query letters. But rather than go, oh, what makes a great query letter? Uh, just, just like a basic question. How long should a screenwriter wait before following up on a query, if at all? Uh, I don't think they should ever follow up on a query. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, it's so funny. On Wednesday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I got yeah. a, a FedEx from this writer in Ohio. Mm-hmm. He FedExed it, one sheet of paper. He included a bar of chocolate, which I promptly ate because I like chocolate. <laughs> and um, uh, and I read it right away. And I called him, and I didn't call him because he FedExed it. I didn't call him because um, he included included the chocolate. I called him. This is not the. This is it's a, it's another one. I called him because he wrote a good query letter. You know, he's a NPR correspondent. He wrote a book that he sold it. You know, which I thought is interesting. Mm-hmm. He um, he wrote a book that got sold really quickly, and he's working on a TV project with Russell Simmons. I mean, you know, and I'm like, well, that all sounds quite delightful to me. Sure, and sure. so, you know, I'll read a script. You know, if someone else thinks he's that talented, you know, I want to read him and think and figure out where he's talented. And he was so grateful to get a call too. I mean, grateful. I mean, he thought it was like. Jesus calling. I'm like, no, it's not that important. <laughs> so, um, you know, I every query letter I get, I prefer query letters in the mail. Every query letter I get, I I look at, I look at it, glance at it for 20 seconds, yeah. and then, you know, if it, if it gets me more excited, I read the whole thing. If it doesn't, I just put it in this pile, and I literally have a pile here that uh, I have a pile that dates go back. Um, the dates go back a while, and this pile may it goes back to June, and it's October. 
Yeah, so it's hard. I mean, I, I, I sort of need um, a basic quiller does get me excited. This is my this is who this is my idea. They give me a paragraph on their idea, mm-hmm. and and I went to you know I got an MFA from Tish and you know and um, you know I work in Starbucks or whatever. I mean, I don't I don't care about ideas. You know, like I care that I want to know that you're you're talented. The only way I know you're talented from a letter. It's not that you have a great idea. An idea, that, a great idea, doesn't tell me over you're talented. It's even validated in the marketplace in some way. Mm-hmm. You know, some executive somewhere has read your material and loves it. If you have sent your scripts out for a year and you don't have any fans of your writing, that's a that's a problem. You have sent your shit out to, to contests and you've won one or two or three. You've been validated by someone else other than yourself. Right. Um. That um. You know that kind of stuff stands out in a letter. You know, if I if I see just paragraphs of, you know, this is what my story is, and you know, this is, I went to this school. You know, and the only time a school is exciting to me is if you went to you know Harvard or Yale or an Ivy League school, or you're you know you know you're walking a tra- trapeze and 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 Europe or something. You know, like something really out of the out of the box. You know, you know I read this um, David Mamet book called. Uh, like Bambi and Godzilla or something. <laughs> right. And he has a uh, uh, chapter in there about how film school is a fucking waste of time. <laughs> he may have even said the words fucking right. waste of time. Um, I mean, if someone tells me they went to Tish, I don't really give a shit. Mm-hmm. You know, if they, someone they told me they they won these four awards at, you know, the, the Tish X or Y, X, Y, and Z, I mean, that's interesting. Right. Now, is there any type of uh, genre that you respond to the most? or any sort of material that you're, I don't want to say actively looking for, because I'm sure you're looking for good material, whatever that may be, but are there specific genres you personally prefer? I don't want to answer that question, because there are, and um, the people mm-hmm. who know me really well sort of know what that thing is. Right. However, you know, I want to be, you know, you know, just because I like that genre, I don't want people to just send me stuff in that genre, right? Or me, or me to be known for just liking that genre, right? Right. You know, like um, I'm looking to be inspired on the page, and and that, you know, can come in any form. You mm-hmm. know, you know, I don't like um, comedy. You know, there's a, a client of mine wrote a comedy of manners. I don't like comedy. I don't like you know things of that subgenre, but this happened to be one of the funniest things I've ever read. Right. Or um, you know, uh you know, I'm not the biggest fan of heist movies, but someone wrote one of the best heist movies I'd read on on paper. Mm-hmm. You know, or um, it's not about the genre. You know, like you know, it's about finding people who can turn the genre on its head and do it in a way that you know, a, a former colleague um, used to say that he was always looking. You know, to write in the Hollywood convention is to you know to be in the box. You know. You know, to you know the rules of whatever you know first act bullshit is, or uh, screenplay should be this length, or you never kill your 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 um, hero, or whatever the rules are. You know, because these right. conventions. And so, great screenwriting is doing all the things that keep you in the box, but then elevating the box. Right. You know, and you know how to describe what elevating the box is. You know, I, I think I would be richer if I can explain that. <laughs> right. Now, you talked about um, awards, uh, festivals, and things like that. Now, screenplay competitions. Now, do you keep up with screenplay competitions and, uh, you know, like reader services, like Script Shark, things like that? And if so, it depends, which... on how, it depends on how busy I am. Okay. 
you know, we right when the nickels were announced, we didn't have a lot of scripts in the pile, and so I had my assistant call all the ones that didn't have managers. He read them and then passed on a couple to me that he liked. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I follow the ba- the big ones. You know, Nichols, Samuel Goldwyn. Sure. You know, you know, I used to get script shark scripts. You know, from that service, but you know, one of the people who used to run that service, like a woman named Lisa Ahavi, who she has, she's like a screenwriting consultant now. Mm-hmm. Lisa Ahavi. She, um, you know, anything she loves, I'll read from her. And so maybe there are a couple people out there like that who have consultant-like things that send me things that they really love. Right, right. The woman who used to run some contest, Julie. Um, and there's another woman who um, who sends me stuff every so often who has good taste. However, you know, if there are contests I haven't heard of, that you, but you've won seven of them, and you know, and you put that in a queer letter, that matters. Mm-hmm. Um, now, one of the more prestigious... Uh, oh, Julie Gray. Julie Gray. Um, one of the more prestigious sort of competitions, although it's not really a competition you necessarily enter other than uh, going out wide from spec, I suppose, is the blacklist. Now, you, like Matthew Aldrich has had a couple scripts on the blacklist. Um, now, being his, his manager, what does being on the blacklist do for a writer, more than just the script itself, but what does it, what does it do for as a writer? How does it help you sell Matt Aldrich? Well, that's a complicated question. Um, how it helped Matt specifically when Father Daughter Time was on the blacklist at the end of 2011. Mm-hmm. Um, it was read by the Pixar people and, and he was called in for a general meeting. He was called in for a meeting on one of their projects you know, in March of 2012 mm-hmm. and, um, and they got the script specifically because they read it on the blacklist. And then he, you know, he was hired within days of that meeting, and you know he's, you know, making a, you know, a gazillion dollars working work, working for them ever since. Right. Now, I don't expect that to be. That's not what happens to every writer on the blacklist. Right. Um, you know, for some people, they get nothing out of it. You know, mm-hmm. they don't get any heat, any bump, any recognition. You know, I, I represent other people who've had scripts on the blacklist that I haven't, you know, gotten them very much. Um, I pay attention to the blacklist. My friends pay attention to it. You know, I, I'm attempting to get scripts on the blacklist for this year, and I, I consider it to be like, um, you know, if you're marketing a product, you never know what marketing is going to be the thing that helps that product penetrate into the marketplace. Right. You know, and so I view the blacklist as one of many tools that could be the thing to help finally, you know, create an impression for. A writer uh, in the market, and so um, I don't think it's end all be all, but I think it can be helpful. And though I pay attention to the blacklist of the year, I don't necessarily pay attention to the blacklist website at all. Right. Now that's that was my next uh, topic. Um, talking uh, Franklin Leonard, who created the blacklist, now has sort of a paid script. I guess they they call it a recommendation engine, where it's sort of a script coverage service where I guess they recommend certain scripts and have another blacklist or something. You heard good things about it at all? You haven't heard anything about it? You know, I I really have a lot of respect for Franklin because huh? he has taken this idea of a blacklist mm-hmm. and monetized it, sure, and wrung so much publicity out of it, and has created a business for himself that um, is worthy of note in a town where creating something new is like being a magician. 
Right. And so I have a lot of respect for that from one businessman to another, you know, who knows how hard and tough this business can be. Mm-hmm. Now, um, you know, my business is driven by, you know, intimate personal referrals. You know, me, that's how I found this kid, Jack Stanley, a producer in, in New York who respects me enough, calls me and says, Julie, you should read this. I think it's great. Now, um, you know, and I read it because I trust that person's opinion. I read it because um, I'm the only one getting it. Right. You know, I read it because, um, you know, I'm looking for clients. Now, if everyone in town knows that a script has gotten highly rated on the Blacklist website, you know, I mean, I have no interest in competing with 10 other managers. It's right. a waste of my time. It's a waste of my time. Mm-hmm. Recommendations from readers is not the same thing as a recommendation from someone, you know, works with a producer or an executive and who has three scripts for a living. Right. You know, I've, you know, I, Scriptshark used to recommend sh- shit to me all the time that was recommended by readers. But, you know, I liked one out of 20 submissions, you know. Oh, right. And so readers often read things too quickly or because they're being paid for script. And it's just, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily trust it. You know, there was one reader who's the guy who recommended The Prettiest Girl for me. So I trust him. I'm like, whatever you read and love, you send it to me, I'll read it right away because you have good taste. You have taste that's different than the norm. Mm-hmm. You know, but if someone has nothing, they have no recommend, they have no friends, they have no fans, they have no way of getting involved in Hollywood, Mm-hmm. Paying Franklin whatever you need to pay him, I don't know if it's twenty dollars or thirty dollars or fifty dollars or hundred dollars to get your script read and get it recommended on some site, that's better than nothing. Sure. You know, if you if you can't figure out another way to get your material seen, you know, and you know, and there are people who, you know, I don't know if it's one person or five people or ten people who have gotten, you know, traction out of that site. You know, right. the CAA on Tuesday I was saying. And they, you know, they were all in a tizzy about a script that was sent to them because it was highly rated on that site, mm-hmm. you know. And so, but that doesn't happen to, you know, dozens and dozens of people. It happens to one person every few months. Right. You know, in my in my knowledge of the world, I don't know everything, but that's just from what I hear. <laughs> right. Now, one thing that I, I had made note of, which I thought was very interesting, you've said in the past that you you will rarely be a producer on a client's projects for a couple reasons. One that you don't really like producing. Uh, and secondly, you know that it can often be a conflict of interest. Can you elaborate a little on this? What What do you think of the state of the management production companies? I mean, do you feel a lot of them are focused too much on the production aspect? You know, I don't necessarily understand a lot of what my competitors do. I don't understand having 50 clients. I don't understand how one can produce and service a, a client list at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know, going to going to casting meetings and, and location scouts and all these other things. You know, how can you build build value for people at your desk. You know, I know that, um, you know, and, there, and it ebbs and flows. You know, years ago, everyone was doing it. Then, you know, it, people started doing it less because buyers weren't responding well. And then, you know, some of it's making a resurgence. You know, I've, you know, my clients who, these English guys who I represent for eight years, you know, left me to go with a manager who's well-known to be do both. And they're super frustrated that every time they call about you know, I still, I'm still friends with them. I see them pretty regularly. Or, mm-hmm. they, excuse me, they were in town. I saw them pretty regularly. And um, they said, you know, every time they, call, they send him an idea, he wants to attach himself to produce it. Mm-hmm. And so and they're frustrated by that notion. I'm sure their experience is no different than, you know, hundreds of other writers. I would have preferred never to have produced, to produce a thing because it makes my cell much easier. <laughs> and right. I like... 
I like being very black and white, even though I live in a gray world. Mm-hmm. Um, however, um, I started to produce this one project, this Grace That Keeps This World, that we're making with Brian Cranston, because, um, you know, uh, when I was negotiating this Pixar deal with Matt, for Matt Aldridge, he, um, you know, we had this script, we were working on it, and, um, you know, so, you no, know, we were negotiating the deal. We were we were going to structure the deal in a very interesting way so that he was going to make much more money in residuals than a normal deal of this kind. And um, Matt was one of the few people, a few clients of mine I didn't commission residuals. And so um, I wrote him this two-page letter about, you know, why I should be commissioning residuals and why I'm the shit and why all these things I've done for you and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And so he read this letter. He called me. He was like, well, Jewel, you know, I think this is this letter is the reason why you should be my producing partner. And I was like, what? <laughs> and so, you know, he he had to, he has his own ambitions to produce. We, you know, he wanted to produce the script, the grace that he had been working on. And you know, and and um, you know, in retrospect, it made total sense. It it didn't make sense at the time, but only thinking back on it, it made sense because I had been acting like a producer the entire time on the script anyway. You know, found the book for him. You know, atta- successful in attaching finding the director, you know, going with him to all these director meetings, you know, sussing out my own relationships to find these elements, you know, um, you know, when we had an interest from Reese Witherspoon, you know, going with him to these meetings with Reese and, you know, just really, you know, keeping the train on the track mm-hmm. and, you know, being, you know, being a, a voice in all of these creative decisions. And so, um, you know, I, I, I said yes to him because I didn't want to say no to a client who's important to me. You know, all of the things, all the reasons why I don't like producing, those things remain true through this experience. You know, the only reason, you know, there, 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 reasons for con- conflicts of interest present themselves all the time. You know, producing takes away time from my clients, my other clients. Mm-hmm. Um, all the other things that I mentioned, and I've mentioned these things online in various places, all those things stay true. But one thing that happened that I did not suspect was that, you know, producing this project brought Matt and I closer together. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I wouldn't have assumed that going into this. And so, you know, because I want to do this for the next 20 years, because I really love my job, because I really think I have a, a strong connection with these people, you know, the idea of finding a way to, you know, bring our relationship closer is, it became a very validating, exciting notion. And so, you know, since then... Uh, and since I've had such a great experience and great success on this project, you know, I've um, I've mellowed out of my hands of not producing anything. And, you know, right now I'm attached to, you know, three projects, mm-hmm. you know, but these are all things that I'm super passionate about. These are all things that, you know, I go to every meeting on. I'm, you know, I'm, you know, doing, coming up with director lists. I'm, you know, meeting all kinds of people. I'm really, and, and um, you know, I'm, I'm just being very selective about it. Now, if you could give one piece of advice to aspiring screenwriters, what would it be? Well, I immediately thought of, well, am I talking to a talented screenwriter or a non-talented <laughs> screenwriter? <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, let's assume I'm talking to a talented screenwriter. Okay, let's do that. Um, Even if they're I'm, not talented in their own head without objectivity, they probably think that they are. No, I'm only talking to the talented ones. Okay. Everyone else living in delusion, and those people, I just feel sorry for them. Okay. Um, if I'm talking to the talented screenwriter, I'm thinking, you know, um, my advice to them is all you need is time. Mm-hmm. Who knows if it's a, a month or years. 
Right. But to the talented screenwriter, all you need is time. Right. That's it. Um, now, we have a, a little section we call Rapid Fire. It's just five fun, quick questions. Um, sure. So the first one, as a bulldog, are you in Skull and Bones? And if you are, are you allowed to tell me? Uh, I'm not in Skull and Bones. Okay. I wasn't popular enough to be able to get in Skull and Bones. <laughs> um, what's more fun for you? Listening to Jewel, the singer, or playing Jewel's the game? I've never heard of Jewel's the game, and Jewel's the singer sometimes annoys me, so I would say listening to Jewel the Jewel. Okay. Myself. <laughs> oh my God, that's such, a, that's such an awful answer. I sound like such an egomaniac. I'm really not a son of a bitch. I'm really not. <laughs> um, <laughs> Go on. Now, now, who was the most romantic of the romance poets? Lord Byron? Percy Shelley or John Keats? Yeah, John Keats. You know, I find John Keats to be impenetrable, and he's my, I, have, I have his middle name. Mm-hmm. He's, his last name is my middle name, so I should love him. And so I'm thinking about reading more John Keats. I'll just go with John Keats. Okay. Who's a more compelling character? Ross from Friends or Thane of Ross from Macbeth? Neither. Okay. <laughs> Next. Um, and the last one. Who's the most prominent former Inglewoodian? Paul Pierce. Tyra Banks or you? Tyra Banks. Tyra <laughs> Banks. I, I so respect the fact this woman has made tens of millions of dollars on that fucking show. I mean, <laughs> the last count, it was $120 million or something. I mean, this woman, I met her when I was a kid, too. She's, she's, she's the shit in every way. Where did the name Jewel Ross come, or Jewel come from? It's a family name. I'm actually the third. Oh, wow. Kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of cool. So where did, the other, where did the first Jewel come from? Um, my grandfather was named by his maternal grandmother. Yeah. She named her other daughter's children, Ruby, Pearl, and then Jewel. Ah, cool. And how the spelling came about, my um, grandfather didn't go to school to quite late. You know, he was seven, eight, or nine when he first went to school in a one-room schoolhouse with four or five other kids. Wow. The only person in that, in that collection of kids who could read and write was his cousin, who was 15 years old. Mm-hmm. And my grandfather had never seen his name in print before. And so they uh, wrote, you know, his cousin wrote five different versions of Jewel on a blackboard and asked my grandfather to choose the spelling he liked, and he chose this one. Wow. That's cool. Thank you. Um, now, you can visit uh, silentrlit.com. Uh, that's uh, the internet home of Jewel Ross. Uh, and please visit our website at scriptsandscribes.com for more information on all of our guests, archived podcasts, and lots of other great written interviews and information on writing. And if you have any questions about the craft or business of writing, you can send us an email to ask at scriptsandscribes.com or just send us a tweet to at scriptscribes. There's no and in the middle there, just at scriptscribes. Thanks for listening. <laughs>